0: Welcome to Good Employment Chatter, the podcast of the Greater Manchester Good Employment Charter. In this season, each and every week, we'll be speaking about equality, diversity and inclusion. We'll be providing key legal updates, getting practical advice from industry experts and spreading more awareness on the good employment practice that's going to make Greater Manchester fairer and more inclusive and with equal opportunity for all. And I'm your host, Ian MacArthur. So let's get on and into the episode. Welcome all to the first episode in the third series of our Good Employment Chatter podcast. Each week we'll be discussing different equality issues, starting this week with equality reporting. No employer can begin their journey to providing good employment without truly understanding their workforce. Being able to identify disparities, inequalities or lack of representation is crucial to developing a fairer and more inclusive organisation. Collecting the right data means that you can understand and tackle potential issues and take action in the right direction. In this episode, we'll be speaking about pay gap reporting, why it's important and what steps employers need to take to report on this correctly. We'll also be looking at reporting approaches in other countries across Europe and how looking internationally can perhaps help employers get ahead with their own strategies. But firstly, we'd like to reintroduce our resident employment lawyer, Adam Haynes, a partner at Aaron and Partners. Welcome back, Adam. It's terrific to have you with us on the podcast once again for this series, and really looking forward to your updates today.
1: Thank you, Ian. I really appreciate being back here today. Today I'm going to actually deal with the basics around quality reporting that lead into the discussion today. The main legal obligations is obviously around gender pay gap, the reporting. Obviously, there was previously consultation on whether to put in place an ethnicity pay gap report, but it was not taken up at that time. And I'll discuss around that topic as well. And some businesses actually report on much more, much wider issues than they're obligated to under the gender pay gap, but there is no legal obligation to do so. First and foremost, what is the gender pay gap? So it's the difference between the average earning of men and women across a workforce. As simple as that. So what are the company's obligations in relation to gender pay gap? Since 2017, if you're an employer who has a headcount of 250 or more, on a snapshot date, you must publish the mean and the median gender pay gap figures for relevant employees. The mean is the sum of all the values in a list. Divided by the number of values. So, if you have a payroll of 10 million pounds and 250 staff, you divide that 10 million by 250. The median is the midpoint value when all the pay is sorted in ascending order. It's perceived that the median is the best representative of the typical differences between the genders and is not distorted by the higher earners. Companies are also obligated to report on the difference between men and women in each of the pay bands. This shows the difference in pay at all levels within the business, the difference to men and women on the bonus pay gap, and the proportion of men and women who receive a bonus in the same 12-month period. This report then needs to be signed by a senior member of the organisation to confirm the information contained is accurate. We then move on to the wider piece, which is, has actually the introduction of the gender pay gap helped? It's very difficult to con- conclude either way on this because there's not a huge amount of reliable data. One side's view is that it's raised the level of women being recruited and promoted into senior roles. It has clearly brought this issue to the forefront and has created greater transparency, in my opinion, and led to certain companies being called to account. If you look at the recent introduction of the gender pay gap bot on Twitter. Which was quite all media attention around. It was introduced around International Women's Day, and I'll give a quote from the founder and the reason that she introduced Twitter profile. What it does is it it calls companies or, or brings up people's gender pay gap figures when they're publicising tweets or things on social media around equality and diversity. So the founder said. It came from a frustration of seeing companies distribute messages of empowerment, inspiration and celebration for International Women's Day without actually doing anything to progress gender equality within the organisation. So prevent people from piggybacking on good PR. However, the critic side of this is that this is only reporting. It doesn't actually do anything to require companies to address the gender pay gap. And even more worrying, a claim in Time magazine stated that it will take 136 years for women and men to reach pay parity. The gap in both public and private sector has actually widened in recent years. One of the big issues around this has actually been the pandemic. The pandemic had a huge impact on the consumer, retail and hospitality sector, which are very large employers for women. Women were 47% more likely to lose their jobs or to be furloughed. There's a scenario that was widely discussed at the time of the double shift scenario where women were still required to work whilst also being the primary carer for children, requiring them to care, teach and work all at the same time, putting a huge amount of pressure and stress on them. This led to a lot of women opting to take furlough to enable them to take up these responsibilities and or some leaving professions as a consequence. As previously mentioned, the government did a consultation about the proposal of introducing the ethnicity pay gap. They found that Ethnic employees earned 5 to 10% less than white British counterparts. However, the feedback when this consultation was discussed was that due to the small proportion of non-British employees in certain sectors, it would mean that data would be largely meaningless as there'd be such a large swing year on year. This is due to staff levers. So, for example, if you had a senior member of your board that was your only member from an ethnic group who was on a significant salary, then that would obviously swing the figures, and vice versa, if it was somebody at a lower level of the workforce. However, this may be something to look at as workforces become more diverse. But again, you're running the same issues as previously discussed, is actually this is merely just reporting, and does it actually impact and create a more diverse working environment? So what can be done to address these issues, and actually, how do you actually take this further? Well, the Equality Act does permit positive action. Where it's put in place to address a disadvantage. This is a topic which I'm going to discuss in a lot more detail in the next episode, but it's something I wanted to flag today. So what companies need to do is review their working practices and understand how they are perceived by women, ethnic employees and employees with a disability to enable them to accommodate them within the workplace. Employees tech can be very blind to the perception and the barriers that certain processes put in place within the workforce. And again, that's going to be talked about in a lot more detail in the next episode. One thing you don't want to do is follow the example of Wunderman Thompson case, where I previously spoke about it in the last series. But in this situation, there was Wunderman Thompson had a a terrible gender pay gap report. The senior member of staff made a statement to say, in the World Cup of sucking at gender pay gap numbers, we made the final. And almost immediately off the back of this report, they put in place a conference whereby they stipulated to their UK workforce that they wanted to obliterate its reputation as a Knightsbridge Boys Club, which was full of straight white men. This, as a consequence, led to a number of grievances being raised by senior Single white men saying that they were being discriminated against. And then shortly after that, they started a redundancy process trying to remove a number of senior positions from their organisation. In the redundancy pool that was considered, women were removed from that pool and only men were put in the redundancy pool that led to tribunal claims. A judgment stipulated that there was unfair dismissal and sex discrimination as a consequence of the process followed. However, if you actually read the judgment, the tribunal were very positive about what Wunderman Thompson were trying to achieve. The policies they put in place and the objectives they put in place were trying to reform their work. However, the way they went about changing their workforce overnight was wholly inappropriate, and that's where they felt short. The way this needs to be considered is for gradual, well-thought-out change and how to actually facilitate employees from a more diverse background final point to say is, if you're looking at these sort of issues, a really useful starting point is the How to Improve Board Diversity, a six-step guide to good practice, written by the Equality and Human Rights Commission, which is a basic um, step-by-step guide, which explains things to look at, things to be considered, and is a really good starting point. Thank you very much for today.
0: And now to the main discussion. Well, the topic of conversation today is pay gap reporting. Gathering data on pay gaps is fundamental to identify and challenge potential discrepancies and inequalities within your organisation. For larger employers, gender pay gap reporting has been mandatory for some time now. However, we've seen many examples of organisations who have decided to go above and beyond and to report on pay gaps not just related to gender, but also other areas of diversity, such as disability and ethnicity. This discussion today will be led by our guest host, Sam Booth. Sam's a wonderful friend of the Charter and Chief Executive at Pro Manchester. Welcome to the podcast, Sam, and thanks for leading today's discussion.
2: It's an absolute pleasure, and thank you for the very, very kind introduction, Ian. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm really honoured to be invited to to chair this really, really interesting discussion today. As Ian mentioned, today's topic will be focusing on pay gap reporting, and I'm pleased to be joined by two expert panellists who will be discussing the why, the how, and importantly, the what more can be done to encourage businesses to be more transparent and open around pay in the workplace in an effort to increase fairness and equality across the organisation. Our speakers will guide us through some examples of what is happening in their own organisations and offer some practical advice on how to get started. As the first female Chief Executive of Pro Manchester, this topic really does hit home and I'm very much looking forward to getting into some of the detail. For our conversation today, I'd like to introduce our two speakers. We are joined by Evelina Nijewik-Wilson, Head of People and Training at Castlefield, and Mark Russell, Inclusion, Diversity and Equity Manager at KPMG. Both of these organisations are members of the charter, alongside ourselves at Pro Manchester. So it's especially great to welcome you both to the podcast today. It'll be really great to hear your insights on this topic. So first, I'm going to come to you, Evelina. Can you just tell me a little bit about Castlefield for those that maybe haven't come across the organisation yet?
3: Yes, sure, Sam. Thanks for having me here. Castlefield, medium-sized business. We have got 65 callers currently and we are based from Manchester. We are an employee-owned firm where you know 75% of the business is owned by employees, whether it's that's through the trust or owned directly. What we do, we we are a family of businesses offering investment services and wealth management advice. We are doing it slightly different because we call ourselves the thoughtful investor. So we're investing people's money in a thoughtful way, but we also, that financial services firm that aims to live by the same values.
2: That's great. Thank you very much for that. So as an organisation, you are not legally required to report on the pay. So I'd really like to explore why did this organisation
3: choose to report and why is that important to you? Sure. I guess the good culture is a background for all kinds of practices or, or the foundation of what we're trying to do. And whether that's the desire to ensure that our workers are diverse. And a representative of the community and the clients we represent, or whether that's coming to a pay reporting and woman representation, we just think it's the right thing to do. And when we do do that, we're not motivated by tick box exercises or making sure that we meet the specific, certain ratios. We want to do it because that fits with our purpose. And we are acting on behalf of those who invest with us as well. As an investor in a lot of businesses, we expect those businesses comply with certain quite stringent requirements. And we I think it would be quite wrong of us not to walk the talk ourselves. So yes, we have been reporting on gender pay gap for a couple of years now, and we have included that externally now as a part of our wider diversity and inclusion report that came out in January this year.
2: So as an organization, you're reporting,
3: but also encouraging your your clients and customers to something similar. Uh, so our clients come to us and invest their money, knowing that that money will be invested in line with the values. So when we take their values and we go to the businesses we invest in, the companies we invest in, we expect those businesses to show us their diversity um, statistics, to show us what they do to drive the diversity within those businesses. And I think at that point, that would be wrong for businesses to do that, but we wouldn't do it ourselves.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and leading by by example, isn't it? And, and, and setting the standard, which is which is very, very positive. So when did your organisation start to implement the pay reporting? And, and can you maybe talk us through some of the, the positive differences that you've seen
3: uh, as a consequence of that? Yeah, we, we actually, there's quite a few differences, I think. So there are changes that, that stem from that. We, we started, inform- when I meant, mean informally, we probably reported that internally for a couple of years now and, and the one report in January is the first report that was published externally. So when we were doing that internally, what we've realised, we've realised that we have people coming in at different levels with different experiences and without measuring it or without kind of going into a analyzing the data, we have introduced the salary banding, salary ranges within the business probably around three years ago. And that has helped us to manage the way we award. And I'm really pleased to say that all our co within the same seniority levels receive the pay within that range. And it comes to that we are able actually to make an offer to a people um to come and join Castlefield you know this is the pay within this range you know with with the current market people are often offered the counter offers from their current employers and they come back to us and say you know can i have a pay raise and we would be saying actually we have to be fair to other owners this is a salary range we're offering for that level of seniority if we were to offer you more that would be just unfair that gives the confidence to Current corner, those salary ranges are observed. We do review them regularly. And obviously with inflation and with their market, we do change them. So they're not set in stone. But if we review one range, we would apply the same change to all the ranges. And that has really positively impacted on our uh, pay gap
2: fantastic yes I can see that and, and I and I guess in, in a world where where um, skills shortages and attracting the right talent is you know renowned uh, to be to be quite difficult having that openness and transparency is, is is a real benefit to the organization for you know attracting the right people to to the organization
3: that's right and I guess another thing that we can see people are coming to us because of what we stand for because of our values because of what we represent because of that notion of, you know, respect, understanding, uh, and it's all—I think it, these elements are really, really important when you try to build a good culture with a diverse workforce.
2: Yeah, I, I, I couldn't—I couldn't agree more with that. Um, and I, I'm finding that, you know, from, from some recent recruitment that we've done within our organization, actually, it's—it's it's not about necessarily about salary; it's about the culture of the. The fairness and and the values of the of, of the business that are much more important, the development opportunities which are much more important actually. For any organisations that are listening to today's podcast and would like to understand a little bit more about about pay gap reporting, where's where's it? How, how do you report on it, and where do they start?
3: It is quite interesting because I guess we scratched our heads for a little while as well. And the advice that is available out there is mainly for those bigger businesses who have to report on it. So I would encourage people to not to be discouraged by lack of a resource, internal resource. The data we need for a gap reporting is the data that that every business will have because all you need is a number of employees, its a, their salaries and the gender and and this is a sort of information that every business will will have. In terms of the practical steps, that's all you need. You probably need a good afternoon and a, or a day and an Excel spreadsheet and just put those numbers down, play with that and, and see what's out from it. There isn't really, you know, when we talk about pulling the data, there isn't any more than that. Of course, analyzing and, you know, the data itself, you're only halfway there because it's what we do with that that matters. And if you're going to put that report to the draw after you've prepared that, that's actually, you haven't actually achieved anything. So I think the hard work comes once you've got that numbers ready. We took our data to our board and we said, this is what our best statistics tell us about our business. What are we going to do about that? And we came up with a number of recommendations and number of action points for 2022. Those action will transform the business. The report itself, it doesn't.
2: Great. Thank you very much, Evelina. I think now is probably a great time to to, to bring in Mark. So hi, Mark. From KPMG's perspective, you're, you're at the opposite end of the, of this spectrum. So as an organisation, as of 2017, you were required to report on gender pay. But I know KPMG actually started to report gender pay gaps way before this. Could you maybe uh, please explore that for us and and why did KPMG start early? How have they managed it and why is it important to your organisation as a whole?
4: Hi, Sam, and thanks for inviting me to the podcast today. It's a pleasure to be here. And yeah, absolutely. So let's take you back through, I guess, some of that rationale. But first, um, for those who aren't aware, KPMG, so I work for our UK member firm and KPMG in the UK Have around 16,000 colleagues. Uh, We're a leading professional services firm. And we first started reporting on our gender pay gap in 2015 before it became a legal requirement to do so in 2017. Uh, And I guess the sort of catalyst and genesis for us doing that then was back in 2014. We had at that point announced, first published our kind of external diversity targets across a range of characteristics, including gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation and disability. And that was really, I guess, in terms of the start of our journey to kind of create a bit more transparency and publish and report progress against some of these metrics and provide some of the data that sits around that.
2: Brilliant, thank you. And so, obviously, you've mentioned you've mentioned some of those protected characteristics there. So, and as I say, you know, KPMG have, have notably gone above and beyond when it comes to, to reporting across the organisation. So, perhaps you can you can tell tell our listeners a little bit more about that and, and why that's important. And and again, what difference has it made to to the organisation?
4: Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it's definitely been a, a journey as well. And, and we're still on that journey. And we we don't ever, I guess, see ourselves as kind of finished on that journey we look at our work on inclusion diversity and it very much as a as a ongoing program of activity that you know we're really guided in terms of of what we're doing on this by our colleagues ourselves it's very much holding up a mirror to ourselves and ensuring that we're providing the opportunities the access the progression all of that support that that our colleagues are asking us for and what they require really what they from, from an employer like us. So, yeah, I, f- I think very much we've kind of had, like I said, when we first published those external targets back in 2014, we've had kind of a, an evolution of three kind of new sets of, of targets. And, and I feel like in terms of us moving up the maturity model in terms of our work on inclusion, diversity, and equity, we've kind of moved from us just being, looking at that diversity aspect and us kind of reporting against the metrics to kind of more now being at that kind of ensuring that there's real inclusion that we're taking an equitable approach across all of our processes policies and really looking at the the fairness as well across across the organization trying to really reflect i think what colleagues' lived experiences are like and like i said we're we're, we're absolutely not anywhere near Finished on that journey and uh, certainly are, are guided and, and led really by, I guess, the insight and the feedback that we're getting from our colleagues ourselves, you know, telling us what their experiences are like. And, and that's really important. And sometimes actually opening up those discussions and having those Wider discussions and really asking how people are, are getting on, how easy it is for them to to get access and opportunities and progress within the firm. Sometimes widening out those conversations to include absolutely everyone is not always comfortable at first. And actually, sometimes you're 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 hear some feedback that isn't comfortable, and you know, and, but it, but it does guide then that approach and and will help. where well, it certainly helps us to then realize where we need to then focus some of that resource some of some of the interventions and the programs that we put in place and like i said we we certainly try and take a kind of holistic approach in terms of the the targets that we have set and we've got sort of six focus areas around gender ethnic minorities black heritage specifically sexual orientation disability and long-term conditions and also socioeconomic background as well. So we've got kind of a quite a holistic suite of, of focus areas there, which we have like sort of representation targets against. And then across those areas we also publish our pay gaps across those characteristics as well. So we're kind of trying to create that consistent approach across all of those characteristics.
2: It's interesting, isn't it? Because you know this this is can be quite a huge area. And I think I think sometimes the the paralysis for some businesses might be just about sort of where, where to start. And at the end of the day, it's just about getting on the journey, isn't it? And you're very open about the fact you've still got a long way to go. But, you know, you're, you're on this journey now and you're seeing what kind of a difference it's, it's, it's making and really imp- improving the business as a whole.
4: Yeah, it is. And it's really pleasing, actually, to then understand that what we're doing in our team. And, and I feel privileged, actually, to work in a role where I get to most of the time work closely with colleagues from across the whole firm but that we're able to actually listen and then play back kind of feedback from colleagues and really and and really try and make a difference to like I said processes policies to ensure that it's reflecting what our colleagues are telling us so I I think that's really important just to make sure that we are really reflecting that lived experience and and getting that insight I mean the data is great and data helps to provide that that guidance, but it's important as well that that data comes alongside that sort of real lived experience and feedback directly from colleagues as well. And and to kind of make sure that, you know, you've got an organization that I think feels like it's actually listening to its colleagues is, is really important.
2: I think that's really especially important, especially after coming out of the, the past two years, really. I think um, one thing that I think businesses are really beginning to understand from a health and wellbeing perspective, and you've touched on this, is very much understanding about your individual employees, you know, what are their circumstances, their lived experiences, as you, as you say, so that you can adapt and mold a business that, you know, helps to support them as, as, as best as possible. And therefore creates a, a really kind of open, open and, you know, great culture within that organization.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And we've got a framework actually at KPMG, which we call our KPMG. And that's very much based on those principles. It, it's really trying to reflect and aspire to what we expect as a, as a, a large organization to kind of provide our, our colleagues. And it talks around doing work that matters, creating a, an organization where people can thrive in the workplace, learning for a lifetime, being able to come as you are, And and making your mark so it kind of really is is a framework around those kind of five key principles but yeah we we absolutely want KPMG to be a place where people can come to work and, and come as they are but feel you know proud to work for an organization as well that you know reflects their own lived experience.
2: Absolutely. Um, and, and we sort of we've touched on this a little bit, but perhaps just to, to go into it maybe in a little bit more detail of um, so obviously a very progressive organization in this in this particular area. Um, so what more do you think actually can be done?
4: I think so much more like it, it feels like whilst there's a lot that's been done and I, and I guess when I go back and think about that journey that was started back before I worked for the firm, but probably then thinking about that that element of doing the right thing. We've, we've moved beyond that phase of, yes, we're doing this because it's the right thing to do. You know, there's a lot of case studies and evidence out there that says creating a, a, an inclusive and diverse and equitable workplace will provide greater innovation, productivity, and uh, ultimately greater profitability as well. So, you know, there's a real business requirement to do this. But I guess when you've got clients and customers and you're truly trying to give them the best service then you really need to be able to reflect that, that customer and client base within, within your own workforce because otherwise you're only ever really going to be reaching, you know, 70 or 80% of the population. But if you can reflect the full spectrum of the, the UK or whatever um, geography you're working in, then you can, you know, you can really reach out and, and support everyone in that community.
2: That's fantastic. Thanks, Mark. We are um, coming close to time. So I'm just going to ask one question to to both of you to to, to wrap it up, if you don't mind. So i will come to you first, Evelina. If there's one piece of advice on the topic that you could give the audience of the Good Employment Charter, what would that be?
3: So with my, um, I think with my kind of SME hat on, I would say, don't be scared and don't wait. Embedding the actions around diversity. In incorporating them into day-to-day business, it's not that tricky. We had an example of a, a in our investment management team during recruitment time, we had a, um, a shortlist of the candidates that applied for the role. And that shortlist has been rejected by the hiring manager, one of the kind of partners in the business saying, hold on a second, that shortlist is all male shortlist. We, sh- we, sh- we can do better than this. And exactly those actions, those kind of wake up points, those ability to raise your voice and kind of call out if something's not right. These are really important bricks that small businesses can start doing without needing to spend a lot of resource, money or time on embedding that diversity into day to day business.
2: Fantastic. Thank you, Evelina. And and that question as well to you, Mark.
4: One bit of advice, I, I would say just do something. Do something. It doesn't need to be huge. It doesn't need to be big, but do something. You know, I talk a lot about allyship in my role and the importance of allyship, and and I think everyone has a responsibility to be an ally on inclusion, diversity, and equity, and can you know can do can do something. So yeah, do do something. Depending on what size your organization is, you know, it doesn't always have to be something huge, but it could be um, something that's the catalyst to something bigger so yeah absolutely do something and you know become an ally on what is a very important topic
2: fantastic thank you so much to both of our speakers i think that's a great way to end to do something Um, and if you need any more information on this i know that the um the 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 people at the the good employment charter would be more than happy to help point you in the right direction it's with a huge thanks to evelina and to mark for their contributions for today's uh, podcast i hope you've all found it useful i know i certainly have and i think you know there is only ever positive can come out of pay gap reporting um and understanding What's happening within your businesses and how you can make some positive change so on that note i thank you all and it's been great to be part of this podcast
0: to end today's podcast we'll move on to the opinion piece this is a part where for the next 10 minutes or so we'll be hearing from a policy expert who will share their views on an equality subject Today, we're absolutely delighted to be joined by Christine Omer-Pinter, a Senior Research Manager at the European Foundation for the Improvement of Living and Working Conditions, which is also known as Eurofound. Christine will be providing an international perspective for us, focusing on gender pay gap reporting across the countries of the European Union. Welcome to our podcast, Christine. It's brilliant to have you here with us today
5: yeah thank you so much for the invitation i'm thrilled to speak about that subject
0: christine an international perspective is a great way for employers in the uk to look beyond what is perhaps legally required and also to seek inspiration from good practice elsewhere and could you tell us a little bit about your work at eurofound particularly around gender pay gap reporting and perhaps share some insights on where Greater Manchester employers should be looking if they want to learn from the best practice in Europe.
5: In the EU, uh, we have really large variety of pay transparency instruments. And I think it is very, very difficult to pinpoint a best practice example, simply because Immediately, if you single out a single instrument in a country, actors in that country would say, yes, but it could be improved in this and this and that way. So I think there are many elements which are good practice uh, in the various instruments. And I'd rather speak of good practice elements rather than of one best practice example.
0: That's, uh, that sounds great way to go.
5: Perhaps I should give maybe a first brief overview of what types of instruments we see across the EU. And then I'll speak a little bit more about um, good at practice elements of these instruments. I mean, virtually we have three types of gender pay reporting instruments or gender pay transparency measures. The first is, so to say, the right to request information that a worker can ask his employer please let me know what a comparative worker in the same company or even within the same region gets paid. And the employer is then obliged to to dig out these comparators' pay. Uh, And that's uh, more or less what Germans have recently introduced in 2017. Then you have a group of countries like the UK who obliged companies to do some kind of pay reporting, which is a very simple instrument, giving simple breakdowns of the gender pay gap in the company with a different uh, set of variables. And you find that, for instance, in Austria, and Luxembourg, Belgium, also recently Ireland have introduced that, and the UK. And then you have another set of countries who dig deeper, and they have obliged some companies to do pay audits. And these pay audits, they go much more in-depth. Uh, they also review the job classification systems. And ideally, they also take into account work of equal value principles. So they don't only look into, is there a gap between the pay of men and women doing the same type of work, but also maybe they're doing work that is not the same, but it should be deemed of equal value. And that's, for instance, done in Sweden or Finland for a longer time, but also recently Spain has introduced such a pay on requirement. And the thing is, in this huge variety of instruments, no country really has a very comprehensive approach to date. But that's where the EU recently came in and von der Leyen has, uh, in our inauguration speech, to the parliament proposed to set up a legislative measure, which is now on the table. And this is a more comprehensive approach, which combines many of these elements uh, of pay auditing, work of equal value, pay reporting and beyond. And so coming back to your question now on best practice instruments, best practice elements, I mean, one element to look at is the degree of transparency that these instruments have, right? So only in a very few countries, we see that these instruments have been made fully transparent, meaning that they're open to the public. And I think in this sense, the UK is a good example, because you have made your gender gap reporting publicly available And I think this is something which really has created public awareness, public discussions around, so why are women in the lower brackets of your earning quintiles that you're supposed to report on? I think hopefully this is some element which then triggers further company action or further public policy action. Most countries of the EU don't have that, so the reports would be still company bound and uh, they would not be shared usually beyond the company and sometimes they're not even shared with the workers like for instance in luxembourg or austria then so this is certainly where i think the uk has a good practice element on the other hand i think another good practice element is to what extent the the companies involve the employee representatives right And this is obviously very much contingent on having these employee representation structures in place in the countries, having a meaningful social dialogue, a good culture of social dialogue already embedded in the company, good trust between the the management and the unions. And some countries are better in this regard and more prescriptive. Like, for instance, the Finnish way of pay reporting, they have enshrined in their law to involve the employee representatives at different stages of the pay auditing process. And this is an element which I feel is lacking in the UK. So I don't think that you have that in the legislation. But also in other countries, like for instance, Estonia or in Belgium, in in the more rudimentary pay reporting, um, social balance sheets, instruments. They also don't involve employee representatives. Some countries' uh, employee representatives need to be informed only, but like in Austria or in Belgium for the uh, more analytical company pay reports, Italy, Lithuania, etc. But it doesn't really go beyond information. And so I do feel that in countries that have a closer involvement of employee representatives, be it via consultation or be it via um, some kind of commission, negotiating commission being involved when setting up such plans, like in Spain or in Sweden, there is a much better potential for the pay audits than to produce better results, to to really be able to dig deeper and to put the fingers on on the gaps, find the gaps, detect the gaps, and uh, there's a bigger potential that these instruments, the results, then don't end up in a drawer.
0: Yeah, they lead to action, don't they? Absolutely.
5: Exactly, exactly. And the other element I think which is very important in this context is the richness of information contained in the reports, really, in the audits. Because if you're too simple in this regards, the reports won't tell you much more than what you might already know. Like, don't stop when you know that women are overrepresented in the lower pay grades the, the next step is to understand why is this the case and pay audits would usually you know go a step further in in this regard and especially when they also look into work of equal value principles we have recently in euro found undertaken interviews with managers across the eu and we wanted to learn more about what do they find or how how beneficial do they find these instruments, the pay reports and the audits notably. And it's striking to see that the managers and the employee representatives alike both feel that the pay audits, the richer types of reports they are much more beneficial than when you just have these simple breakdowns of wage statistics.
0: And Christina are, are those reports um, that you you speak about are they published on your website? Yes,
5: they are uh, in form of a working paper. Uh, and you find a lot of interesting quotes from managers and employee representatives there in relation to what they think about the, the instruments, what, to what extent they work or don't work. We did that in the context also of the post pay transparency directive, notably with a view to assess how costly are these instruments to implement and then the Information on benefits was an um, addition when we were already interviewing people to see what they think about them. And ultimately, I think a big finding of this research is that overall, it's really not so much about costs. Uh, I mean, ports can be reduced at the re- relatively low cost for companies. Pay audits, yes, they might be a little bit more labor-intensive and costly, but ultimately it comes then down to uh, the fact whether uh, managers find them meaningful or not and are they produced for the legislation and for the drawer or do companies also see a value in them beyond that and can they then afterwards be used for, you know, HR policies?
0: Christine, that's been a fascinating overview. The Pay transparency Directive, obviously we are not as close to the EU as we used to be, And it would be interesting to know what the timescale for the implementation of that directive, how it's moving through the EU institutions.
5: So at this stage, my understanding is that the proposal that the Commission has issued some time ago, last year I believe, is currently in the negotiation phase between the European Parliament and European Council. They both have set their positions. On the proposal, and I don't uh, have exact insights into when these negotiations you know, are uh, going to be finalized. But I would assume that it won't take very long anymore. And if they are finalized and if the parties come to an agreement, then the transposition phase into national law is set to be two years in the proposal, I believe which means then after two years, uh, member states would have to come up with new legislation.
0: Christine, that's been fascinating insight uh, to a, a perspective that we don't often bring to the podcast. So it's wonderful to have that broad view across Europe. And I recommend to our listeners that they visit your website, Eurofound. I think it's eurofound.eu. Is that correct?
5: www.eurofoundeuropa.eu
0: That's the one. And we'll certainly post that after the, uh, the podcast. There's lots of information on the website that will help our employers across Greater Manchester. Christine, thank you so much for contributing to the podcast today. It's been great to have you um, with us.
5: You're welcome.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on Good Employment Chatter. Make sure you follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn for all the latest updates. Subscribe to stay tuned to our episodes and if you found this one valuable, please leave us a review and recommend it to others. The Good Employment Charter is available to support organisations across Greater Manchester. Please get in touch for more information. We'll be posting new episodes every week, so make sure you tune in next time.